welcome to the Book of Mormon Evidence podcast with host Rod Meldrum. This week's Come Follow Me supplemental study is Lesson 5.3, First Nephi 16 through 22. I will prepare the way before you. This week's guest is Boyd Tuttle, president of Legends Library Publishing. In September 2019, Boyd was privileged to accompany British explorer and former naval captain Philip Beale in a replica Phoenician ship which attempts to prove that ancient peoples could have reached America 2,000 years before Christopher Columbus. Who were the first sailors to cross the Atlantic and discover the Americas? History records Christopher Columbus. However, sailors could have reached the Americas 2,000 years before Columbus. They were inventors of the alphabet, creators of blown glass, discoverers of purple dye, instigators of global trade. Colonies on the eastern side of the Atlantic, they could sail west to Egypt, Greece, Carthage, Magna Graecia, which is today's Italy, Sardinia, Spain, up to England and Ireland, and down to Senegal on the western side of Africa. Did the greatest sailors of antiquity reach the New World? Some believe so. Philip Beale, former Royal British Navy, writer, adventurer, and sailor, will brave the Atlantic Ocean on Phoenicia, a Phoenician ship replica. The expedition known as the Phoenicians Before Columbus will sail from Carthage, Tunisia to Spain and Morocco, the Mount of Gibraltar and Cadiz, Spain, down to Morocco, Eswaria, Canary Islands, and then west over the Atlantic Ocean. Welcome to another edition of the uh, Book of Mormon Evidence streaming podcast, and we're excited about having, uh, we have a special guest with us today. We have uh, Boyd Tuttle. He's a publisher, and he's a, and he also has some really interesting experience that, that deals directly with the early part of the Book of Mormon, so we're excited about that. Uh, those of you who are joining us, uh, this is from, the, again, the Come Follow Me uh, manual. In the last few weeks, we have covered um, things from the introduction. The next uh, section here was the uh, first Nephi chapters 8 through 10, then uh, chapters 11 through 15. Today, we're going to be talking about first Nephi chapters 16 to 22. And in those chapters, specifically in, verse, in, in chapter 17, it talks about a very specific voyage. Now, just to give you a little bit of background, again, so we have some context here and an understanding as far as this is concerned. So we have 
essentially we have the uh, Abraham who has a uh, who has a covenant that is given to him on his promised land called Canaan. That promised land is basically the Levant area around Israel and that area. You have the the, the ten tribes in the in, in the north, and then you have the, the two southern tribes. The ten tribes have now been um, you know in this in this particular case, basically the ten tribes have been um, drawn off. You know the ten lost tribes of Israel, as we all know them as. And then the two southern tribes are left. Lehi has been uh, trying to um, convince them that they need to repent because of this uh, vision or dream that he had. And then they leave through the desert. We have now Lehi and his family have arrived now um, on the the shoreline of the the, the great deep, basically Iriantum, they call it. Now, uh, as they as they go through this, I wanted to uh, share just a couple of things here with you. They have been going now through the uh, the desert here. Uh, for about eight years, right. it specifically says that they did travel nearly eastward from that time forth. It's in First Nephi chapter seventeen. Um, they went down around the borders of the Red Sea. That's in First Nephi chapter sixteen, which were part of this uh, this week's lesson here. And then Ishmael dies in a place called uh, Nahum. We're going to have uh, more discussion about that. And then uh, and then they end up in this land bountiful area. Now in the land Bountiful, they uh, they find interestingly they find ore and they find um, that there are there's apparently wood or trees to make some ships, and a lot of people are not familiar with a, an amazing voyage that happened just a few years ago, and I wanted to show you this is that Lehi's ocean route for eight years, and then this is a ship that was was built, and that was something that was done uh, way back in uh, in 2000 and. Um, Eight in two thousand nine, and then uh, and then they, they, the idea was that they were going to build a ship. Now, let me just give you a little background about this particular thing. Um, there was uh, there, there's there's there a history that was written by a, a, a historian by the name of Herodotus, and Herodotus wrote this history. And in this history, he talks about how there was this people called the Phoenicians, and who are the Phoenicians? Well, basically, the people who lived on the on the west coast of what is now Israel, essentially, in what's called Phoenicia, and that they were making circumnavigations of Africa, and according to his history, clear back um, before around Lehi's 600, time. Around 600 BC is when Herodotus suggested that they were yeah, exactly, possibly exactly. circumnavigating Africa. Yeah, that, because he was about 500 BC, and then so uh, they say, you know, a hundred years before us, mm -hmm. these people were doing this. Right. As n now we know from history, and, and I think Boyd's going to tell us a little bit more about that. That actually the Phoenician culture and that and the seafaring tradition actually extends even way beyond that. But in Herodotus's uh, his history, he talks about how um, these Phoenicians knew how to make these circumnavigations around Africa. So there was a group of of individuals from the UK. Um, one of them is probably by the name of Philip Beale, and uh, and he decided that he he has done other expeditions kind of like this, and he decided he was going to uh, do a new uh, expedition. But first, they needed to have a ship. Right. Now let's go for just a second to what it says in the Book of Mormon about the particular ship that Nephi made, and this is from First Nephi chapter seventeen, verse seventeen. It says, "When my brethren saw that I was about to build a ship, they began to murmur against me, saying." Our brother's a fool. He thinks he can build a ship. Yea, and he also thinks he can cross these great waters. I find it interesting, first off, when Nephi went and found out and, and, and got this directive, uh, and he came back and told Laman and Lemuel that Laman, Laman and Lemuel's response wasn't, uh, what's a ship? Right. 
right? Right. Why, why do you think the, that they knew about uh, ships? So the Phoenicians were sailing as early as 1000 BC. So they were already Long operating for more than 500 years. They had a well-established uh, trading route all over the Mediterranean and, as Herodotus suggested, even enough to circumnavigate to the great continent of Africa. Um, and so the concept of shipping was not a new concept to the Israelites. They were well aware of it. They were only lived 100 miles from the seashore, uh, from Jerusalem, and many goods you know, were being traded and being brought into the city that were, yeah. that were being shipped in. So if that's the case, then Laman and Lemuel cl- clearly knew about ships and shipbuilding. So why did they say, our brother's a fool? You know, as, I, as I look at that, they're going, they probably knew what it took to build a ship. Now, I have, I have to cut back to just a little bit here because Boyd is uh, one of the only individuals, one of the few individuals in the whole world and one of the only individuals within the church that has actually made portions of a voyage on the ship. There's a couple of others who have done that on the, on the earlier edition. Boyd just actually just got back just a few months ago from a second voyage, and I'm going to let him tell all about that one and why this is so critical. But this, but this ship was uh, was actually built in Awad, Syria. Individuals from the UK, they're some of, probably some of the most foremost experts in ancient maritime sailing and vessels and so forth in the whole world. And they said, you know what, we're going to see if we can actually uh, do this voyage. We're going to basically go from Saudi Arabian Peninsula. We're going to essentially sail around Africa, back into the Mediterranean. And we're going to prove to the world that Herodotus' history is actually doable in a 600 BC ship. Well, how do they know what these 600 BC ships look like? So let me talk about that because um, I became very intimately familiar with this ship, living on board for a number of weeks. Um, But the ship was built, like you said, off the coast of Syria using traditional building methods. So it was built in the same manner using, they didn't allow any power tools. It was very much just handmade the same way it would have been made thousands of years ago. And they use a variety of different woods they use a special joint called the Phoenician joint, actually has its oh, name. Really? And how did they know how to do that is because they actually found a ship that had been shipwrecked off the coast of Marseille, France, called uh, the Jules Verne, Jules Verne 7. And that ship was was uh, largely reconstructed, brought up, and so forth, and it's in a museum now. So this now. ship was actually kind of semi-intact, yeah, portions of it. And it is and dated could... to 600 B.C., the <laughs> ship that they found at the bottom of the sea yeah. and then restored or recovered was intact enough that they could identify the exact kind of woods, the exact kind of joints that they used, and it's a very sophisticated joint. I mean, way we can show it on the screen is how they, they had if you're familiar with a dado type of joint, they would use one kind of wood for the outside and one kind of wood for the dado or the connector, and then they would put wooden pegs in to hold it all together, the dowels to hold it together. And the wood in the middle that makes up the the dado actually expands more than the wood that it's in. So it (laughs) strengthens the seal and literally binds the ship together uh, in an amazing, remarkable way that that this was put together. As As a crew member on that ship, we endured some very rough seas uh, in the middle of the Mediterranean uh, for a whole night uh, with 20 and 30 foot swells. I mean, the yard arm. How, how big is the ship? Tell the ship the is ship. It's 67 feet long, 20 meters. And, that, and that's the, back, the typical meters. size of a Phoenician ship, right? Yeah, this would okay. be called a Phoenician merchant vessel. Uh, they also had a lot of military style defensive vessels. 
uh, that were just manned with lots of men, and they were made for speed and for defensive purposes. Did they have the oars, or how were they? They would have oars. Okay. On the, but on this the, ship does not have... They, the merchant vessels also had oars, but they were primarily just used for getting around in harbors and when they had to go uh, like uh, upwind or something like that where they couldn't. These ships were only capable of sailing before the wind. It only had a single sail, a broad sail, that essentially you had to have the wind blowing at your back yeah. and you would just go. You could go five degrees north or south. Yeah, let, let's address that for just a second because I, I wanted to talk about the construction of the ship itself. From the, This is from the Book of Mormon account. In the Book of Mormon account, it says, this is First uh, Nephi chapter 18, verses 1 and 2. It says, It came to pass that they did worship the, the Lord and did go forth with me and we did work, the, work timbers of curious workmanship. And the Lord did show me from time to time after what manner I should work the timbers of the ship. He says, Now I, Nephi, did not work the timbers after the manner which was learned by man, neither did I build the ship after the manner of man, but I did build it after the manner which the Lord had shown unto me, wherefore it was not after the manner of men. Now a couple of things I get from that, and I want to get your kind of comments on this. It says, basically, it's a wooden ship. Wooden <laughs> ship. And, and it also says it was curious workmanship, which means it's, pro it's not something that they were at least aware of or used to. So it's some there's something different about it. But I, I want to just notice a couple of things. Number one, the Lord didn't ask them to, to build an aircraft carrier. Right. <laughs> you know, right. And it wasn't a power ship. Um, it was clearly, it was a, a, a wooden sailing ship, which is the reason why we think that this is a good analog. This, uh, this Phoenicia expedition ship is actually a really good analog to what Lehi and Nephi and, and Laman Lemuel would have built at that time. Well, let me add to that because you got to realize, so the Phoenicians have been building these ships for hundreds of years. And they've had many years to perfect their design through trial and error or whatever um, to reach the, the degree of sophistication that they did on these ships. And, for example, they would use um, Aleppo and Mediterranean pine. Pines, yeah. They would use walnut and Mediterranean oak. And, and they would use cypress fir. And each one offered a different property that had been perfected, that they had perfected for the purpose that it was used for. It wasn't just randomly pull a plank and throw it in there. Every bit was... Now you think about the time and generations of ships it would take to get to that I level that, of perfection. Yeah. I believe that the Lord, you know, was kind of giving Nephi a shortcut on how to get all that stuff Download. done. Through, through Revelation, <laughs> he showed him how that how that was done and obviously he had no knowledge of how that was being done the Venetians themselves kept it very secret yeah. so it wasn't like it was broadly known that was their strength that was their yeah. power and they didn't give it away freely yeah, but, they, but they must have known how difficult this was and how many years that it took for the Phoenicians to learn how to do this which is probably the reason why Laman Lemuel turned to Nephi and said our brother's a fool he thinks he can build a ship Exactly. It would be like they, they weren't shipwrights. I mean, you know, they it would they, be like you, they were traders. you going to your brothers or, or, or family <laughs> and saying, I'm going to build a rocket ship and fly to the moon. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I mean, they're like, you're a fool. What are you talking about? It's <laughs> yeah. impossible. Yeah. That was the same kind of thing. But, but, but again, I just want to bring back the fact that, you know, they didn't, the Layman Lemuel's response wasn't, what's a ship? Because clearly people knew what a ship was from, from how long? When was, when was the, one of the earliest ships that we know of? Noah's Ark. Noah. Yeah. So people have known how to build a ship, or at least about ships, even clear back until Noah's Ark time. Sure. And so clearly they knew about this. So so that, so he talked about this. So now um, a couple of quick things then about the, the original edition, or the original expedition, I should say. 
and uh, and that is that they basically um, they follow down the uh, just like just like in the Book of Mormon talks about they follow down the Red Sea, got over onto the Saudi Arabian Peninsula. There's a couple different places there that have interesting uh, aspects of that topography and also inlets and things that that where they could actually build the ship in there and and the wood and the oars to be able to make the metal uh, tools that they needed to be able to build the ship. And so all those things are things that didn't weren't they weren't known before, but now they're known about uh, about these things, and it's and it's actually proving out the, the story of the Book of Mormon. How would Joseph Smith possibly know this clear back in his time frame? The, a good example is that we know that the ancient Phoenician ships, because of the the wreck that they found, actually used iron nails. Mm-hmm. That was part of the construction, and so we know that they had the ability to smelt iron and, and use it for the for the shipbuilding. Right, but they, they weren't really using it for beams and so forth. They were using it to help hold to, things to together. hold it together. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Right. yeah. So, so, so basically, a, a couple of quick things. Then, so the uh, Phoenicia expedition, the first expedition that we're going to talk about, is the verification of Lehi's ocean voyage. A lot of members of this church do not even know, are not even aware, that Lehi's ocean voyage not only has it been done. It's been done in a 600 BC replica ship in our in our time and verified. No one knew that. In fact, even the I find this interesting. Even the people who were doing the expedition didn't realize where it was going to lead them. And uh, and so we're going to get to that in just a second. But let's go back for just a second to where they started from. Well, the ship ended up in a place called uh, Salala Oman. Mm-hmm. And the reason that they went to Salala, they normally would have not gone that far uh, east across mm-hmm. the Arabian coast. But because of something that was going on back in 2008, 2009, you'll remember the Somali pirates were yep. a pri- problem yep. in those days. And Philip Beale, the captain of the ship, who, by the way, did not know anything about the Book of Mormon or <laughs> all. Lehi's voyage or anything yeah. to that effect, wanted to avoid the Somali pirates. And so he moved himself further east. They were on the Horn of Africa. Yeah, they they were were right on the Horn, yeah. Yeah. And so they decided to, you know, skip that and move further east out. And they ended up in Salala, Oman. And that was their official starting place. He had no idea that many LDS scholars believed that Salala was potentially Nephi's bountiful. He had no no understanding of that. But that's where he started, just... By coincidence. Now, a couple of things. Um, first off, so we know that this that, that Lehi's uh, ship. It says that, that, that there's a couple of scriptures that he brings up um, that he said that the um, that they gathered fruit and honey in abundance. Right. They all got aboard the ship and were blown before the winds. Well, if they're blown before the winds, what does that tell us? That they're not going against the winds. Now, a couple of quick things about that. The um, the, the ship that you're talking about here has an interesting hull. Uh, around 1100 A.D. So long after this expedition, ships began to be built with a hull that kind of went from the sides that came down this way, and then it makes a deep keel. V. It has a, a, big, mm-hmm. a big V keel, which allows the ship to basically be able to tack against the wind to some extent. Mm-hmm. This ship didn't have a deep V hull. Right. What does that What does that do to your sailing capability? Yeah, so it's, you're limited, obviously. Um, if you try to sail, let's say, if your you're cross-purposes are the wind, you're going to get blown sideways. You're just going to skid across the water like this. You cannot go forward with a wind that's coming at you from now, 90 If you degrees. have a sail, it doesn't kind of tend to bend the... To, to, pull the ship over sideways instead of... Instead of yeah, it's going yeah. to pull the ship. It's, and, and the ship is... This kind of ship, a, a, a shallow hull ship, is only going to sail 
well and effectively when it has effectively a tailwind pushing it along. That's what it's designed to do, and they do very well with that. Yeah. And given the currents that they knew, they knew where they needed to place themselves at certain times of the year for the wind to carry them in whatever direction they needed to go. Yeah, so now, now just, just being a devil's advocate here for just a second, so why couldn't the Lord have shown Nephi how to build a ship with a deep keel so they could sail against the wind? Well, clearly he could have done that, right? But basically, he didn't need to. <laughs> if, if they go this particular route, which we're about to, to, to talk to you about, um, if they went this route, they didn't need to have a deep keel. And we can say that with the certainty because they actually did it. Right. So this is not a, a question of maybe it's, it's, it, it happened. Um, that, a couple of things. When did they leave? About, uh, you know, it, well, I'll just, I'll just kind of address this really quickly. Yeah. Um, it says in the Book of Mormon that they gather fruit and honey in abundance. Now, that's another important kinds. thing. Isn't it interesting that the Book of Mormon just gives us just exactly enough information so that we can know with certainty which direction they went? Because a lot of people you... thought that they went east, went through Indonesia and so forth, and then went up and, and ended up on the west coast of America. But uh, there's actually a ship that actually tried that. And what happened to that ship? That was called the Jewel of Muscat. And uh, they actually tried to do this, and they ended up having to be pulled by powered ships Right. To be able to make it to, I think they were going to Singapore, if I remember correctly. Okay. And, they, and they left from the Saudi Arabian Peninsula. They couldn't even do it. It was so contrary to the winds and the currents that they couldn't even get there. Right. But if they followed the natural winds and currents, now some people say, well, God could change all the winds and currents. Well, yeah, they might, he might be able to do that. Certainly he could. Okay, but he doesn't need to. Right. Why wouldn't he give him instead this? The Leahona say, now you get down to this point and then you build a ship and you don't have to have this all this specialty stuff about the uh, the deep keel and all that kind of stuff because I'm going to send you to a place where you can just build a regular, more or less flat bottom, not flat, but a, a rounded Shell bottom line. ship mm -hmm. and you'll still get there. Right. Now, the interesting thing also about that, that part about that they um, gather fruit and honey in abundance. When do they have fruit and honey in abundance? On the Saudi Arabian Peninsula. In the fall. It's in the fall. Also, they're the northern hemisphere, so they basically yeah. have the same kind of. There's also the fact that they are Hebrew. These are Jewish people, and they followed the Jewish practice of harvesting in the fall. So it's it's whether whether the climate condi you know dictated it or not that would have been that would have fallen into the time frame that they would have done their harvest by tradition and by yeah. uh, by religious right. And yeah, see, and I actually contacted some uh, some honey. Honeybee grow, you know, basically beekeepers mm -hmm. over there, and also people who grow, have the figs and so forth. Because this this area here is actually pretty lush. When the, when the, the the winds off of the Indian Ocean come up in there, um, it actually rains right along the coastline, and then as it goes in, it basically becomes just complete barren desert. Right. <laughs> okay, but right. right there along the coast, it's actually pretty decent. And uh, and it, and if they had fruit and honey in abundance, and that, then that tells us right there what season of the year was it that Lehi had to have left. In the fall of the year. In the fall of the year. Yeah. Which brings us to the next big big equation here. Which direction are the winds going along the Saudi Arabian Peninsula there in the fall of the year? Well, it turns out that there's only primarily two wind patterns about that. There's the, there's the wind pattern that comes up in the spring and, and summer, which comes up off the Indian Ocean and comes up along there. That's what brings the rainy season. This is what makes it so lush there. Mm -hmm. And then in the fall of the year, that wind pattern changes. Instead, it starts coming down out of, out of uh, India and that area and basically blows down the opposite direction, kind of to the south and to the west. 
and that's the wind pattern that would have been happening in the fall of the year right. when they got the ship finished. Well, and let's just to point out the fact that when Philip Beale left Salala Oman, it was October. That's right. And he had one choice of which way to go, and that was where the <laughs> winds the wind. took him. <laughs> and it took him right down the east coast of Africa to the started to the Comoros Islands is where he had the first stop. And then, Which, by the way, just for this topic, so uh, that word Comoros, what does that sound like in the Book of Mormon? Does that have any place name? Almost like Camorra. Doesn't that sort of yeah. sound like Camorra to you? And the capital of Comoros is an interesting name Oh, as yeah, well. and I love this one. So I'm sure it's mind, just coincident. I Really, I do think it's just coincidence, <laughs> but it is interesting that the capital is spelled M-O-R-O-N-I, Moroni, Moroni. Uh, is the capital of Comoros Islands, and, you know. For what it's worth, it's, there it is. <laughs> and sure enough, they did stop there yeah. on their way down uh, the coast yeah. of Africa. Yeah. Now, now basically, um, you can see in this that in this illustration here, just some of the uh, the ocean currents, basically, as they as they go. Basically, all of the southern currents of the of the oceans go in essentially a counterclockwise uh, revolution, and then all of the northern oceans go in a clockwise revolution. So, if you leave the Saudi Arabian Peninsula. And you, and you head out here, the natural ocean currents are going to take you, not only the ocean currents now, but the wind currents as well, are going to take you basically down the east coast of Africa, right. which is exactly what happened to the Phoenicia expedition. So they got down there, they went around, the, uh, they, they got down to the bottom of Africa, and then they had a really interesting thing that happened to them. And this is actually um, an interesting aspect of this uh, as well, is they got into a huge storm. That's right. And you have actually experienced this. I want you to That's describe right. for me what it's like to be in a, in a storm with 20-foot-tall waves when you're in a 60-foot-long ship. Well, um, <laughs> the, the ship fared well. <laughs> the ship fared well. But the people in the, it. The people in it struggled a bit, let's just say that. <laughs> um, but I was at the helm for, for uh, two hours during that very fierce storm. It was at night. Um, you really have no light other mm -hmm. than what is just ambient in, 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 at, at night. And you just have a compass that you stud, you keep your eye on all the time, and you're trying to keep the ship headed in the direction that uh, we're trying to go. Now, in this case, how, how much is it? Toss? We were we were we were tipping at 45 degrees, so it's like a roller coaster <laughs> ride. I mean, it's a it's a real Disney ride. Um, the yard arm, which is the what holds the the sail, uh, it was dipping in the water on both sides, and that's how. Wow. far we were tipping and and that was with the sail down okay we didn't have the sail up during this why because the wind was actually driving us backwards if you go back and look at the at our path you'll see in the middle of the mediterranean we take a little jog in the reverse direction that was during the storm that we experienced we had to deploy a storm sail for an anchor so we actually put the storm sail out in the water and to, and it would balloon oh, out to slow you down to balloon out one. like a parachute underwater and it slowed us down from from being pushed back on the water but nevertheless yeah, we were pushed back all night and all half the day well the reason why i think that's just absolutely fascinating that all of us know this story here they uh, that in first nephi this is in chapter 18 of this of this lesson it says there arose a great storm yea a great and terrible tempest and we were driven back upon the waters for the space of 3 days so you've actually experienced being driven back. I, I have. I have in our journey. Now, let me tell you what happened to Philip in the exact place that I think Nephi would have <coughs> had this experience. As he was going down around the Cape, uh, Cape Horn of Africa, uh, the Cape of Good Hope, 
Yeah, the Cape of Good Hope, Cape at, the of Good Hope Africa, at the very yeah. bottom where you have the Which, Indian Ocean. By the Ocean. way, that was the, just, just from a time frame wise, that was about, uh, so they, they in, in this expedition, let's give you some time frames yeah. here. So they left Salala Oman October the 26th of 2009, which is just, you know, 10 years ago, approximately. It's been 10 years. Can you believe yeah. that? Um, then they departed the, the Comoros Islands about December the 20th of 2009. Then they got down into the, this storm happened on March the 2nd of 2010. This is when the, 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 and the main sail of the ship was actually torn to pieces. It's torn in half. They were in the same kind of thing, you know, 20, 30 what, foot swells. Let me tell you what happened. Yes. So, so on the ship, the crew saw the ship moving rapidly through the water. The waves were crashing toward the bow. It was making apparently great progress in a forward direction. But on their GPS, which they had, they could physically see that over land they were moving backwards. How is that possible? So the current was the current literally was moving this faster than the wind was pushing them in the opposite direction. So they were literally <laughs> plowing through the wind through the current, They're but not fast driven enough. Back upon. So they were being driven back upon the waters. When I read that in in Philip's book, and when I've talked to him about it since, it was a perfect description of what what Nephi exactly what Nephi was experiencing when they're when they're on the ship. Yeah, so that's and again that uh, references First Nephi chapter eighteen verse thirteen, being driven back upon the waters. So they uh, so they, they ultimately they ended up having to actually put into land there in South Africa. They they, they repairing came in, the sails. That's and so right. Forth. They had to re, re rebuild the sail. They had to repair the mast which had broken. They had a lot of yeah. damage that they experienced on that. I, we don't know how Nephi dealt with that. Whether he had to pull into land or if they just fixed yeah. it on board. But they could have. I mean, the, the interesting thing about the Book of Mormon, it never says that they. It never says, and we did sail to the promised land without stopping. Right. It never says right. that. But it, it never says that they stop either, so we just don't know. Let me just tell you, as someone who has been on a Phoenician ship, probably similar to Nephi's in size and capacity mm-hmm. and so forth, um, when you're out in the ocean and you've been out there for a few weeks, when you see land, you go there. <laughs> I'm just saying. Water, fresh water becomes really, really intriguing at that point. Yeah. And fruit. Fresh food. And fresh food becomes super enticing yeah. to your, after you've eaten canned foods and dry goods and so on and so forth as we did, and potatoes and carrots that were quite wilted by the, t- you know, three weeks into the trip. Yeah, yeah. So I can imagine them stopping along yes. the way. And the interesting thing, if they go this particular route, they can stop anywhere along the entire east coast of Africa. Yeah, that's right. Or on the Comoros Islands or all through that. There's islands all through there. So they wouldn't have to be basically, they, you know, it would give them at least options as far as food and water and, and being able to, how much could they store? The interesting thing about this is, though, to me, is if they go the other way that people have basically suggested that they went, they, you know, instead they went to the east. Well, first off, they'd be going against the currents. Secondly, they'd have to cross the world's largest ocean, the Pacific Ocean, at literally its widest point, with no place to land to be able to to, to replenish. Or replenish yeah. Which is the reason why the church got kicked in the teeth by these a uh, couple of uh, documentaries put out by the History Channel called "Who Really Discovered America," and they actually came out and said, "You know, yeah, a ship could make it, but a ship would make it with dead people because it'd take a minimum of what, 380 days." Mm-hmm. For them to make this uh, this route to make a west coast landing on Central America, yeah, and there's nothing that says that they made a west coast landing or that they landed in Central America. So this this is a route that actually makes a lot of sense. And the cool thing about it is, we don't have to say we wonder or we think it might have gone this way. We can say this has actually been done. But the magic happened actually now 
but, but now they, they now they're leaving South Africa. The next leg of the trip was the the key indicator is, yeah. to those of us who embrace the idea that Lehi <laughs> sailed in a ship and reached the promised land. This was okay. the key. And, and the reason why, because originally when they when they set out there, and in fact, this was part of their logo on the original voyage. They had the, they had the, the ship going down the east coast of Africa and then going up the west coast of Africa, and that was the plan all along. In fact, Five they stops. even had several of the places where they were planning to stop actually laid out as to what they were going to do. What happened? So what happened is they started heading out, and unbeknownst to them, the wind and the currents did not allow them to stop anywhere on the west coast of Africa. It took them directly west, further west, across the Atlantic Ocean, uh, pointing them the toward Brazil for the longest time. <laughs> they, they thought they might make, make contact in Brazil. Um, I, remember, I remember reading the ship's logs at that yeah. point in time, and they were kind of freaking out. They're going, um, we can't get the ship back to Africa because, the, because of the hull design, which is important in this whole thing. Um, they couldn't. They couldn't tack against no. the wind. They had to go where the winds took them, and the winds were taking them further and further away from Africa, and closer and closer to central, well, to the new South world. America, to the New World. And they were out in the middle of the Atlantic at this point in time, and they're kind of like, now what? Yeah. There's an interesting episode in in uh, Brazilian archaeology, actually, of a stone that was found carved on the coastline at that point of Brazil, the furthest eastmost. Uh, mm-hmm facing point where there is a stone that had been carved on and it was written in Phoenician okay and it said we are Phoenician sailors we were part of a, of a 12 ships and our ship uh, uh, you know struck these these these, these and we've we've been you know shipwrecked here you know may the gods save us and it's all carved in stone now Interestingly, that stone has somehow disappeared, but there are <laughs> drawings of it and so forth, and it and it continues on as kind of a you know mythology about yeah. that. A lot of people have called it a hoax, but it's remarkably doable and possible, especially given the Herodotus discussion, and now with Philip's uh, you know circumnavigation, it's very easy to imagine that they could have ended up in on the Brazilian coast, and even more likely somewhere in in the uh, Medi- in the Caribbean Sea, I should say. Yeah. So, so basically, so what ended up happening is so they went up, they continued on up there. Um, now, I, this is another interesting aspect to me. They leave in the fall of the year, so they get a full contingency of food. They load the ship up with food and so forth for, for, the, for the, the voyage. They leave. But the interesting now, the equator, if you take a look at kind of where the equator is, they're north of the equator. So when they get down to the equator, um, they, they're going south. Now, Keith Johnson was another guy who was at LDS, Latter-day Saint, and he also was with the, he, well, he was with the first expedition. And one of the interesting things that he said is, you know, um, they asked him, he asked them, well, what should I wear for the expedition? And he said, all you'll need is shorts and a t-shirt because you're not, you were going to be going through, the, through the, the winter of the year as far as we're concerned. But as they cross over the equator from the, they're leaving in the fall of the year, when they cross over the equator, they're actually beginning to sail into summertime in the southern hemisphere. By the time they get around the uh, the, the, the the bottom of Africa, basically South Africa, um, they're midsummer. Now they leave. They're coming up on the west side of the uh, of, of Africa and, and into the Atlantic Ocean, and it's now waning summer. Now what happens is they they now are getting back close to the equator. They cross over, and guess what this this the uh, season is. 
in the northern hemisphere as they cross over. Springtime. It's springtime in the northern hemisphere. And I think that's just absolutely fascinating for several reasons, but the, one of the biggest ones is that if you, if you use the, or the, the Phoenicia expedition as a precursor or, a, or a, a, a similar kind of a voyage to what Lehi did, what did Lehi do when he arrived here in the Promised Land, when they got here? Planted we, seeds. We know exactly what they did. This is from chapter 18, verses 23 and 24. He said, after we had sailed for the space of many days, and they didn't say several years, <laughs> okay, this many days journey, we did arrive at the promised land. And it came to pass that we began to till the earth and plant the seeds which we had brought from Jerusalem. And it came to pass that they did grow exceedingly. Isn't it interesting? When you take a look at the, uh, at the for example, you know, all of the, uh, the explorers from Europe, when they left, whether it was Columbus, Cortez, Coronado, you know, and all and all of those, you know, the, the pilgrims, the, the everybody, they couldn't leave it, the 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 ports or the harbors there in in Europe until after the ice had cleared out of the harbors from the winter time, which means they had to leave sometime in in early spring. Okay, so they didn't hit icebergs because you know icebergs and ships, ships and mm, icebergs, never, you know, Titanic it it comes well. to mind. <laughs> okay. Mm. So they can't really sail while there's icebergs and so forth going on. So they have to wait till the icebergs are out of the water, which means they can't leave till basically early spring to mid-spring. It only takes a few months to get across there. I'm going to let you talk about how long that takes because that's the, this is the next thing that's so cool. I can't wait to, to share with everybody here. But basically, uh, when they got here, they would always be here late in the fall. And so what did they do the first winter? They starved. But instead, if you follow God's plan, which is, is not, you know, when you think about it, it's a way longer distance to go clear around Africa and everything else to get over here. Why not just go whoop, across the Atlantic Ocean? Because you die. <laughs> okay. Interesting. So God actually took them around Africa, which takes way longer, but it, that they're sailing into summertime, and it's summertime the whole way. There's nobody's freezing. They don't have to, even have to bring a coat. And basically, they make it all the way to America, and uh, and that's I just find that just absolutely yeah, fascinating, it's remarkable. And they land in the springtime of the year, and yeah. and that's pretty much an analog to what uh, Philip Beale uh, did. If you take out his stops, you know the dis the time to travel is exactly that. It takes you in the fall yeah. and lands you in the spring. Yeah, and, and interesting enough, so if so that uh, ba based on the Phoenician expedition, mm -hmm. they left in October. Um, of, of, of 2009, if we if we now apply that to the Book of Mormon, basically Lehi would have let's just say that Lehi just happened to leave on October 26th of 2000, or excuse me, of 590 BC. Okay, now October we know it was in the fall of the year, so that's probably pretty close. That would then put if they if they didn't, it's, you know, uh, with the Phoenician expedition, they actually stopped several times along the way. Um, they wouldn't have to stop, though, because Lehi had all of his people with him, so they could actually just sail straight through. If that was the case, then, then according to the, to the Phoenician expedition, it would have taken them 103 days, or just barely over three months, to go from the Saudi Arabian Peninsula to the south end of, of, uh, of South Africa, so about three months' time frame. Then it would have taken them about another, um, well, uh, they, let, they it means uh, Lehi's arrival there in Cape Town, South Africa, would have been somewhere around February the 6th of 589 B.C., as he was rounding Africa, again may have stopped. We don't know that, but uh, but bottom line is if they if they follow the the trajectory of the Phoenician expedition the rest of the way all the way up to America, that would have put their 
potential arrival of Lehi's landing party um, in North America, April the 10th to April the 25th of 589 BC. And again, the significance of that is that they planted the seeds that they brought with them. Some people said, well, but you know, but would the seeds grow if they're coming, you know, coming from, from Israel? Would the seeds grow very well over here in America? Is it about the same latitude? It's the exact same latitude. It's the exact same latitude. Yeah. Now we have put down we have put down Florida as a potential landing spot. Why why did we pick Florida? And I'll just I'll just address this really quickly, and then we're going to go into your newest expedition. But the re, the reason why we think that the that the the Florida area may have been an, an area for Lehi's landing are, are numerous, but a couple of those main points are basically this. Number one, when Lehi arrived, he made a very prophetic statement. He says, "We have obtained." the promised land. If the United States of America is the promised land, which we've been talking about in the previous um, podcast and so forth, then he had to have his feet on the physical land that we now call America, or specifically the United States of America. Mm -hmm. Okay, number two, um, this is the natural place where uh, a sailing ship would come in because we know that the currents come in you know, that's where we all, we've all followed the hurricane patterns, you know, as they come up and they go up into um, the, the Gulf Coast, basically, area. So that's a natural wind pattern, which would make sense that Lehi would be in there. We also know that that's the same direction, basically, that uh, most of the early explorers from Europe came in. They came into that general area from, from uh, again, from Columbus to Coronado and Cortez and, and so forth. They mostly all came into that general area as well. Um, the, the next reason why we think it's probably there is because that's the earliest part of the of the ancient Hopewell Mound Builder people. The very first earliest uh, mounds and so forth that have been found are down there in that general area around Tallahassee, Florida, um, and they date into about uh, you know between about uh, five or six hundred BC. So that's a pretty substantial reason as well. So this is the reason why we're thinking that that's uh, arrival would have been there. But ultimately, that whole thing would have been done um, uh, in 103 days on the east side, and then uh, 74 days over to basically uh, you know, Cuba, Puerto Rico, that area, and then about 15 to 20 more days um, up into Florida, making a total of 90 days on about about three months on the east coast of Africa, three months being, basically getting to Florida, six months journey. And the people at the History Channel could not have kicked the, the, the church in the teeth if they would have been aware of this expedition. True. So there was another <clears throat> famous expedition in the Book of Mormon that we don't hear a lot about. But there was another people that came over, and they weren't found until a little bit later, after Nephites, after Nephi and his family had left the land of first inheritance, and they moved up into the uh, land of Nephi. And then they left the land of Nephi, and they went to the land of Zarahemla, and they found some other people there. Let's talk about the Mulekites. So right at the time that Jerusalem was being besieged by King Nebuchadnezzar, <clears throat> he, um, just because exactly what Lehi had predicted would happen if they did not repent, and they did not repent. And so the city was being sieged and by the Babylonians, and after three months of this, the king of, Zer of uh, Jerusalem, whose name was Zedekiah, saw that the city was going to fall. 
So Zedekiah flees with his entourage, his family, and so forth, and they head across the plains of Jericho, heading for Jericho for safety, but they are caught by the Phoenician, by the uh, uh, Babylonians, oh, okay? Babylonians, yeah. And the Babylonians uh, soldiers take them to where King Nebuchadnezzar is in another city, and they bring Zedekiah and all of his sons, and there they line them up and tragically kill each and every son in the view of King Zedekiah. And when they're done with that, they blind Zedekiah by putting his eyes out and as a sign or a symbol that your kingdom is over. And also that the last thing you will ever remember in this life is watching your sons die. Yeah. Yeah, so the Babylonians were incredibly efficient and effective in destroying any possible uh, claim or, or, or argument to the throne, right? Because that's always what happens with monarchies. You have some random person that claims, well, my fa- I'm the true heir to the king, and then yeah. they get the people to follow them, and they overthrow the... So the Babylonians were very good at making sure that would never happen. What they did then was took Zedekiah back to Babylon and kept him there the rest of his life so that he would be a living witness to anybody who tried to retake the kingdom. Uh, and he said, no, he I, no I know there were no errors. I saw all of them go. So, the, so here is the remarkable thing. In Genesis 49, the, the Lord, through his prophet, uh, blesses the sons, all the sons of Jacob, right? Mm-hmm. Isaac gives his last blessing to all of his sons. And he gives, and we know about the blessings to Joseph because that's where the Book of Mormon comes from and so on and so forth. But we rarely pay attention to the blessings given to Judah. And, yeah. one of the, and the blessing given to Judah is that the scepter shall never depart from thee. What this is to say is that the kingly line, the, the, the divine kingdom under, under, under the, Jewish, the Jewish kingdom will continue this kingly line, which begins with David to Solomon and so on down through the lines until finally it comes to King Zedekiah. And many rabbis look at this and scratch their heads because they say the Lord doesn't break his promises and he promised that the scepter would not depart. So they, they struggle to understand what could have happened here that the Lord didn't keep his promise that the scepter shall never depart from the, the, the kingdom would continue. Well, what we know, and we only can know this because we have the Book, the book of, Mormon, of Mormon, is that in fact there was a son of Zedekiah who was preserved, so allowed that promise to be kept. Now, here's where we depart from the scriptures a little bit, and I will insert my own thinking on this, and it's part of the theme that I'm developing for a book I'm writing. And the thesis is that the only way Mulek could have survived is because he had not been born. He was still in the womb of his mother. The name Mulek means dear little king. Okay, that's oh, from Hugh wow. Nibley. That's from Hugh Nibley. Hugh Nibley. Yep. Okay. So you, we know that he was, A, either very young, and I assert that he hadn't been born. Had he been born, it would have been a matter of public record. And any king's son is born is a matter of public record. That's, that is a big deal, right? Because he's a potential heir to the king, to the throne. And so I would assert that, A, not only was Zedekiah unaware but no one was aware except his mother. And so in the womb, 
she carried him out of Jerusalem and protected that sacred seed to to keep the Lord's promise. And what did he do? He took the scepter from the old Jerusalem and moved it to the new Jerusalem. (laughs) Which is exactly what Lehi and his family were doing as far as they were moving from the old uh, the covenant, which we've talked about in previous uh, um, episodes here, we've talked about this covenant with God and what happens when people ignore the covenant. And this is the result of that. So God's going to have to reestablish the new covenant. And, he's, and where is he going to establish it at? The new world. There you go. So, so we have this remarkable parallel path going on with promises of Joseph being fulfilled the promises of Judah being fulfilled, both of those promises being fulfilled in the new Jerusalem. So it's an amazing visit, a visibility to the fact that the Lord keeps his covenants. He keeps his promises. promises. He never fails to deliver and keep his promises. And we only know that because of the Book of Mormon. And we can be grateful for for Omni, that little part of the small plates that we have in the beginning of the book, that that is captured and that um, this whole story is even captured there. I don't know if it would have been in the 116 pages. We don't know. Well, that's right? just it. And, and, and also, if you think about this again, I, I mentioned this um, uh, with other other episodes, that uh, when it comes down to this, this is the, these are the things that were on the small plates of Nephi. And Nephi said that this was the more spiritual account. Apparently, Nephi felt that these things, like in Omni and, and so forth, these things were more of a spiritual thing than a temporal thing. Mm-hmm. Why did he think that this was this this about the mulek and so forth? That why why would he think that that was a spiritual thing? Yeah. Well, and even Nephi never saw the Book of Omni. <laughs> yeah. Right. So it was really right. it was really Mormon, right? Yes, that gathered right. those and, and and collected those and found found that these were precious and the Lord inspired him yeah. to include them on with the small plates on the small plates so that they'd be available for a future date when they were needed, right? And it's remarkable because Lehi and Nephi would have never known about Omni, right? He was their descendant. And so they wouldn't have been included in the books that Lehi, the book of Lehi, if you will, the 116 pages, would not have been in there. They had never known about it. So we can be grateful that those pages were lost (laughs) so that we could have this new insight that came from, as Mormon put that together, that whole continuous record of the sons of Nephi, the descendants of him, the kings, and so forth. And so what we learn from Omni is that Mulek traveled through the wilderness. So from Jerusalem, it's 100 miles to the coastline, right? Probably to Byblos or Sidon or Tyre. These were three major Phoenician uh, port, port cities, cities mm-hmm. right? And there's no mention of a ship being built. Rather, the Lord says they traveled through the wilderness and then were brought by the hand of the Lord across the great deep to the promised land. Uh-huh. So stop and think. The wife of the king is not traveling alone. She has an entourage. She probably has guards. She probably has a whole collection of people, right? And she has money. She has influence. She has power, authority as the wife of the king, right? So all she has to do is go to this port city, show up, and say, we want to buy we want to buy fare to where you guys been going. The farthest west <laughs> place that you can take us, right? And it's it's to me, I'm convinced that 
at some point. So you're talking about they would have to then go through the Mediterranean. So they left from the from the and not like Lehigh's Ocean Voyage, which goes around Africa. This is a totally different. This is a much voyage. shorter voyage, actually. Yeah. And this is the one that we're here to talk about, isn't it? Because <laughs> should we just move right into that? So, yeah, absolutely. so we're talking about this voyage, okay? The Phoenicians before before Columbus voyage, right? It's the same ship. This is this is the same ship that circumnavigated Africa, but this time. Instead of going around Africa, it's leaving out of the Mediterranean, starting in Carthage, Tunisia, which was a major Phoenician trading center, which is in the northern Africa area in the Mediterranean Sea, about halfway through. And uh, this so where... this is where I joined the, the expedition nice. and was able to spend about 10 days prior doing a lot of research both in Turkey and then in Tunisia, touring all over that area, being led by some really, really smart, intelligent historian uh, people who were teaching me all about Phoenician civilizations. Absolutely fascinating. We could go on and on and what on about that. What were the Phoenicians that. doing? Why, why did they have such a uh, formidable, I mean, weren't they known as the first great seafaring people? Yeah, they were well, why the were they, great seamen. What, what caused that? This. <laughs> this little uh, thing right here. Okay. Not wood. Not wood, but what's inside, okay? So what it says here in French is Purpure de Carthage, okay? Purple of Carthage. And so in here you'll see can you, can you hopefully can you see that? Yeah. So first of all we'll show you these shells. These are Murex shells. It's a kind of mollusk or a snail, if you will, sea snail that is abundant in the Mediterranean area. The whole Mediterranean or just in a certain um, place? Almost the whole Mediterranean. You can find these everywhere. These are deep sea snails. They're not right up on the beach, though. They're not something you can just walk down and find. Um, mostly these are found by divers, sponge divers, things like that today. Or fishermen, when they uh, fish and throw their nets down and the fish get caught in the nets, yeah. Um, then when they pull their nets in, what happens is they leave their nets out all night, and then they come the next day and they pull them in. And during the night, when the fish are stuck in the nets, these fish come and begin feeding on the fish. Ah, these snails. These snails, these snails come and begin feeding on the, the, on the, dying, the fish. dying fish. Yeah, that's where they get them. So they're little meat eaters. And so when the fishermen pull them in, they throw these snails out or they, they want to get rid of them so they'll throw them in a bucket and then they'll give them to my friend who who made me this special little box okay uh, and his name is Gassan and he was an amazing tour guide for us and teaching me so many things and he taught us about how they could extract from these shells the purple dye ah. and purple shows up the in the Bible color. Yeah. yeah shows up in the Bible in many places and it's always associated with wealth, great wealth, even greater than gold, because purple is actually more rare than gold. So let me give you an example. These three snails, all the purple in their bodies would... Is it the, is it the shells or the snails themselves? Okay, it's, it's the snail meat inside. So you, they literally have to take a little hammer and tap it in the right place and you'll break the shell open and then with tweezers you pull out a little tiny gland it's smaller than a pencil eraser and you pull that little gland out and that little gland might be enough uh, dye to to dye about half of this piece of yarn is that, is that what is that uh, what kind of yarn is this that is wool 
wool. This is wool. Okay. It's a piece of wool. So, so you could probably dye a piece of yarn about that long with one snail. So do the math. It takes thousands and hundreds of thousands and millions of snails to, to dye any significant amount. To make amount, like a, a, a tunic like whole or something robe like or a that. Tunic, or yeah. Robe. Yeah. Wow. And the dye itself is very unique. It, it does, it's, first of all, it's not purple. When it comes out, it's, it's yellow. So you can't even detect that it's purple. Um, the whole discovery of dye is fascinating. <laughs> it doesn't even look like it's No, it purple. doesn't even look purple. I used to think, well, maybe they sprayed it out like an octopus or something like that, the ink or whatever. No, it's yeah. nothing like that at all. In fact, to this day, they really don't even know what purpose it serves inside the snail. It's just part of their body and its anatomy that hasn't <laughs> been sorted out. But it, it, uh, it comes out in a variety of different colors depending on the, the variety of snail. Sometimes it's blue, sometimes it's purple. The more red, purple that it is, the richer, the more is. valuable, the more yeah. rare. And anyway, when they get all this, they collect a whole bunch of it. Now, what I have here is a little vial of dry powder. This is actually uh, um, purple dye. Okay, And when you pour that in, into a solution, uh, a water solution, the water turns yellow. It doesn't turn purple. It doesn't turn purple. It turns yellow. And then you would, you would fill a jar, like Gassan showed us, you fill a jar with this and the, and, the, and the water, and then you put the material down in there, or the yarn, or whatever, the silk, whatever you're trying to dye, and, and you let it soak for like 24 hours. Then you take the, the material out, and you... Now, what happens to dye when it's exposed to the sun? You're, it usually fades, it, it? fades in the yeah, sun. It fades. Not purple dye. It cures in the sun. So it comes out looking white, and it turns deep, deep purple. The longer it's exposed to the sun, the richer yeah, the, the, the color becomes. So will it continue to do that over time? And over time, it never fades. Wow. Yeah, they have purple. They still have some samples today, 3,000 years old, that are still purple. And they're still purple. Yeah, that doesn't exist. <laughs> there's no other kind of dye that has that property to it. So that's what made it so unique and special. And there's a whole story behind how it was discovered and so on and so forth, which we don't want to go into right now. But the um, point is it, be, it made the Phoenicians incredibly rich. Okay? So just for example, this little bit right here that's in this bottle is $160 worth of purple dye okay? wow. uh, in today's numbers. It was, you could easily fill a ship like the one we were in with $50 million worth of purple dye. That's that we had. And that's why out of the Phoenicians came the concept of insurance. They actually invented insurance, right? Insure their shipments? Yeah, so that, so that the traders would come to them and say, we want you to carry this. And they'd say, well, if we lose it, we're not responsible. And they say, yeah, you are. And they said, well, then you've got to pay us, right? So then that funded their whole uh, uh, military vessels that they then built, and they would follow these merchant ships and protect so they them had from an entourage of ships basically like we do with our aircraft carrier exactly. groups and so forth today we have all the support ships around the main carrier exactly same kind and of phoenicians thing. did that phoenicians did that phoenicians had a very very sophisticated defensive system in fact we could go on to that an amazing discussion with that i can't even get into right now but what they had i mean they had extreme wealth Okay. Yeah. And they were trading in all kinds of different things, glass, in, in uh, precious metals, in the dye, and, and other things that they were getting from all over the world. Okay? Now, we don't know how far all over the world, but some of us might suggest they were even getting things from the New World. Like copper. For example, copper. And there's, mm -hmm. a great, there's a great example about copper we could talk about. Um, so anyway, this, this voyage <laughs> that I was on started in Carthage, Tunisia. 
with the intent of reaching the New World okay, in a 600 B.C. vessel. And so, in effect, remember, the first voyage wasn't intending to reach the New World, and it, and it never did. It got close, but it actually circumnavigated Africa and headed back into the, yeah. into the yeah. Mediterranean. And so it never touched the New World. But it was about three days away from landfall yeah, in Cuba. Yeah, three from landfall. Right. <laughs> yeah. But nevertheless, yeah. it never did make contact because that wasn't its intent. Yeah. But this voyage, the intent was to show that the Phoenicians were capable of reaching the New World 2,000 years before Columbus. So I was on the trip. Tell us how long ago this happened for you. So for me, I... When did you leave Carthage? On September 28th of 2019. And I I was on the... I was away for seven weeks uh, on the ship for three weeks full sailing. And uh, we, we went... As I expect, we, we had a number of days, and then we experienced some very severe storms, which actually caused damage to our boat, and we broke the sail, or not the sail, the, the mast, the mast. Yeah. The top end of the mast got cracked, uh, which sent us into Algiers for repairs. Algiers is a closed country, so a really interesting episode there. <laughs> I remember some of your pictures. Yeah, they, was, they had the, like, the Algerian Coast Guard and so forth out there. To we, shall, we shall escort you from here. <laughs> kind of things and their bullhorns and they came out to meet us but we we went in and they had their submachine guns as we went into the port and everything it was a really interesting place kind of like going back in time like a Soviet world but anyway we were there three days making repairs and so forth and then left from there headed to uh, Gibraltar you all heard of the yeah. Straits of Gibraltar that's where the Mediterranean and the Atlantic connect and so then in Gibraltar, we had another week of a lot of research going on there. Lots of uh, Phoenician museums and artifacts are found in Gibraltar. And then from, from there, we moved on to Cadiz, Spain. Cadiz is a fascinating place. We've all heard of Jonah and the whale. Yeah. And Jonah was on a ship trying to get away from the assignment that the Lord gave him back in Israel. He, Jonah says, I'm not going. Right, yeah. and he so he got on a ship with the intent to sail to the ends of the earth as far away as he could go. So he was headed for Tarshish. Okay, yeah. where is Tarshish? Cadiz, Spain, uh-huh. and he was on a Phoenician boat. So when you read the story about the sailors and Jonah, mm-hmm. it's Phoenician sailors, and it's Jonah on a Phoenician boat. Because why? No one else was sailing the Mediterranean in the time of Jonah, except the Phoenicians. <laughs> that amazing? So all this stuff is going on that brings us into biblical and Book of Mormon history that we didn't even know was Phoenician. Yeah. It's just fascinating. In fact, I think it's interesting that the, that the capital city of Phoenicia was Sidon. Right. Sidon and Tyre. And we have this river in the Book of Mormon called Sidon. Means river of fish, and the and Sidon means the fishing place or the, the, the place of fish or something Can like that. Can we address that for a second? Yeah, please. Yeah. So, so it is a Phoenician word, Sidon. It's it's pronounced Said in, in their actual Said. language, Said, Port Said in their language. And they, it does mean fishing port and in their language. And so it is interesting, okay? So we've got Mulek boarding a Phoenician vessel sailing to the promised land. I am convinced that somewhere along the way, these sailors were converted. They were converted to the Lord because they settled with Mulek and his entourage. Why do we know that? Because of a few things like this. What language were they speaking? 
okay? It, they didn't meet the Nephites for another 300 and maybe 50 years before they actually first met the Nephites. So, so they had built a city called Zarahemla, and when they met Mosiah, they couldn't speak to each other, right? Mosiah said, your language has become corrupt. I would submit that they were speaking Phoenician, which doesn't sound at all like Hebrew, by the way. Um, even though uh, a lot of their characters are Even similar, though, yeah, some of their... But their actual pronunciation the is different. The words are very different. And after 300 years of no writing, no written record, I can imagine it would have become even more corrupt. Yeah. But it's interesting to note that they named their river that they built their river. city on Sidon, Said, fishing river. Now, why do we think that means fishing river? Because when the early settlers came into the area... They asked the Indians, what's this river? And they said, Namizipu, yeah. fishing river. <laughs> so, interesting so the connection. The Native Americans were calling it the fishing river, and the Book of Mormon calls it the Sidon River, which means fishing river. Do you think there's any chance that the Mulekites may have left from Sidon? Originally? With Very possibly. Very possibly. Mean, Mulek was not possibly born yet. I mean, if, that's the, if that was the case, if, right. if his mother was still... Holt carrying him, and then then they, she gets into the Phoenician ship. It makes some sense that they might have left from the from the capital city of the Phoenicians. Yeah. And as the queen, basically, she boards on the ship. They uh, they head over there. When they get here to America, they decide to call the place that they land after the Phoenicians who had just basically saved them. And that makes all, even more sense if they brought some Phoenicians with them. Yeah. Well, they had to because no one else was sailing those boats. They were only Phoenician sailors that knew how to sail. Yeah, but who are the Phoenicians? Are they What race or what nationality are Phoenicians? Well, that's an interesting question, and I can't fully answer it, but they predate the Israelites. Okay, They were there before uh, Israel occupied that, that region. But, the they, Lord, but they are descendants of Shem. Yes, they're And they're not Shemites. descendants of Ham or, or Japheth. Japheth. So, they, so that means that they are basically... They're the a Semitic people. They yeah. were Semites. Yeah. As far as their physical appearances, they would be. Which also makes sense Semitic. why then that they might be more inclined to go ahead and help out Mulek's mom mm -hmm. to, yeah. uh, to to make the journey because basically they're the same race essentially. Sure. So it gets you know it, it it gets to a lot of conjecture at this point, but there are some interesting things that we observe. This is one that I found really interesting and discovered this while on board the ship reading the Book of Mormon. It turns out that... Yeah, that must have been a surreal experience. It was an amazing experience. I really felt like Jonah at times. Uh, but, but the amazing thing was that um, here's what we learn, is that there are no Phoenician words in the Book of Mormon until after Mosiah meets the people of Zarahemla. And then we start seeing Phoenician oh, really? show up. Beginning with the word Sidon, that's the first. And then, all you know, the... Remember the the count the coins, the limhav, yeah, silver, coins, and the, yeah, the ontai of this, and that, and the other. Those are all Phoenician derivatives, and so oh, all nice. that comes from the Zarahemlaites or their language, and so we have yeah, a variety. The Mulekites, yeah, the yeah. people that lived in Zarahemla, the Mulekites, and it we have a whole smattering of Phoenician words that begin after they meet. Now, how could Joseph Smith have known that? There's no possible way. There's no, well, there really is only one way. He, he was a prophet of God. And he translated a record the way it was written. Yeah. Yeah. By the gift and power of God. 
All right. Well, th this has been a fascinating discussion. I really appreciate your coming and, and sharing some of this uh, this knowledge with us about the, uh, the the Phoenicia expedition, the voyage, and things. Is there any final things you'd like to share with us before we uh, before we close up? Well, I would just say that it, it's it was humbling to be a part of an expedition that reenacted an actual event from the Book of Mormon. Actually. And, and to to be on a ship that did both of the literally did both of the voyages, um, where is that ship remarkable. right now? And so yeah, I want to close with that. And so the ship itself, after I disembarked in in Spain, which is where I got off, the ship continued on to the Canary Islands, and then on November twenty third, it left Canary Islands and never looked back. Okay, it well, left November twenty third of twenty nineteen, yeah. and on December thirty first. Just two weeks ago, it landed in the Dominican Republic at Santo Domingo. So, how many weeks? Is Five that? weeks. Five weeks. Five to weeks cross from the Canary the Islands to America. Yeah. Well, to North to, America. To the to the Caribbean Sea, and so. So wait, is it, and so it's in Santo Domingo. It's in now. Santo Domingo right now, as we speak, um, on the fourteenth, or between the fourteenth and the eighteenth of January, which is in just. Uh, week and a half, the boat will start heading to Miami. And I'm responsible for the Miami landing, and so I'm working on that. And we have a lot of exciting things planned, and it's going to be great. We think it's going to be featured in the Miami Boat Show. We've got a water salute uh, that will be done by the fire you department. Can get this on shooting. Like, uh, Fox News or something like that. Well, I'd love to see it on the news. It'll be a great photo op for any of the media that comes out. And uh, it's going to be a tremendous uh, experience, but we're, we're excited. So the ship will then make landfall in Miami, Florida. And then from there, we'll begin a tour around the coast of Miami. Wow. So that's, that's the plan for the ship. And then after that, the ship, we hope, will end up here in North America as, as a purchased vessel destined for a museum somewhere. Wow, would that be amazing? Okay, last, last, last thing that we're going to cover. When the Mulekites came over, and obviously we now know their route, even because they, they're, they're literally replicating the, uh, the the route of the Mulekites, essentially. Um, according to the Lord, in section one twenty five, verse three, in the Doctrine and Covenants, he talked about uh, he told Joseph Smith to build up a city on the land opposite of the city of Nauvoo, Illinois, and call it Zarahemla. That's right. And the Sidon, or, or what you would call it, uh, you call it Sid. Said. Said. Okay, Said. Um, you know, if that was the case, how did the Mulekites get up there, do you think? That, that is another area of speculation. It is truly <laughs> an area of speculation. And I am not absolutely sure whether they came in on the path they were on into the Gulf, Gulf Coast, Gulf Coast and, and sailed literally up the Mississippi and using various means to get up the current. Which, by the way, for, for those of you who don't know, the Mississippi River is one of those few rivers because of its sheer size. It's more like a lake moving downstream, okay? Mm -hmm. And it has, the, the, the prevailing winds are contrary to the direction of the, of the flow of the water. So in other yeah. words, that while the Mississippi River is actually flowing south, the prevailing winds are blowing north. So it's very possible it, you they could have, even you could deploy sail a sail upstream. and to a certain degree, the ship itself, if it was a Phoenician vessel, like we're thinking it was, uh, it only drafts a, a less than two meters deep. That's only about five feet deep. Yeah. So it can go in very shallow water. 
And uh, it's very possible that you could sail that a long way up the Mississippi. Uh, there's also been speculation that they could have gone around and come up the, the St. Lawrence Seaway and under different circumstances than we have today, been able to make it to the Great Lakes and then come down from there. So there's different uh, yeah, yeah, possibilities. We, clearly, we don't really know. We just don't know. Yeah, but, but uh, either way, a couple of different ideas. It's pretty clear, according to if we take the DNC uh, 125 reference as literal, and there's no reason why we shouldn't. Why shouldn't we? Right. That a city on the west side of the major river that fits fits perfectly to be Zarahemla, right there across from Nauvoo, which would be and, remarkable. And, and it comes from a revelation straight from the Lord to Joseph Smith. I just think, find that, again, it's just so many fascinating stuff. So, so listen, everybody, uh, we, again, we want to thank you all for joining us. Um, it's been a fascinating conversation. I hope that you've learned some things and have a greater understanding and depth of, uh, of knowledge about uh, what it was like for uh, Lehi and his family to be in this uh, ship, and also about Mulek, and that was just absolutely fascinating as well. So I want you to tune in next week. Um, next week we're going to be uh, continuing on with this series on the uh, on the Book of Mormon evidences, uh, evidence streaming and the, uh, and the Come Follow Me program. And uh, we hope that you are enjoying these additional insights and that it makes your study of the Book of Mormon come more alive and more exciting, and that it makes you basically want to really read, study, and ponder the truth of the Book of Mormon, because brothers and sisters, this is how the uh, th this is the book that, uh, that the Lord has given us in our day to be able to thwart all of the fiery darts of the adversary. If you want your family to be stronger and uh, and you want their testimony to remain bright and brilliant and strong, then you've got to delve into the Book of Mormon. And th what we're trying to do is we're trying to give you some reasons to learn more about this. But ultimately, it all comes down to the book. So thank you again for joining us, and we'll see you next week. Thank you for listening to the Book of Mormon Evidence Podcast. If you enjoyed this Come Follow Me supplemental study, click the like button or share it with your friends. Be sure to go to bookofmormonevidence.org or firmfoundationexpo.org where you can buy tickets to the upcoming Firm Foundation Expo held Thursday, Friday, and Saturday, April 9th, 10th, and 11th in Sandy, Utah. There will be three education-packed days, 80 distinguished speakers, 150 presentations and classes on Book of Mormon research, signs of the times, science and religion, self-reliance and health, constitutional studies, and world events.